0: Welcome to the podcast from First Presbyterian Church, Arlington Heights. Our sermon series is called Parallax, where we're going to be looking at topics from the Bible from two different perspectives. I hope you enjoy.
1: Our first lesson today is from Joshua, chapter 11, verses six through 12. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will hand over all of them slain to Israel, and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua came suddenly upon them with all his fighting force by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord handed them over to Israel, who attacked them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misrephoth main and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. They struck them down until they had no one left remaining. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had commanded, hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king down with the sword. Before that time, Hazor was the head of all those kingdoms and they put to the sword all who were in it, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the towns of those kings, and all their kings Joshua took, and struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All
0: right. That's a good start, huh, to the day. <laughs> <laughs> Our second scripture reading comes from Matthew 5 38 to 44. We'll be a slightly different take on this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, well, thank you. So, this is the last sermon in our sermon series. Parallax, I know, I know, you guys are super sad. And I want to apologize to you uh, up front, because what this means is, it's back to just me. And I know that's gonna be kind of rough, not hearing from both of us all the time, or, or Judy as well, but uh, it's been a good run, yeah? yeah. I think the problem is, is that if we kept doing this, they would quit. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's probably good that we're, we're ending it. So if you haven't been here, I just want to explain to you real quick what a parallax is. Parallax is when two people are looking at the same object, but they're seeing it from different perspectives. We're trying to show how this is true of the Bible, how two people can be reading the scriptures and come away with completely different interpretations of what it means. That is the last time I have to give that explanation, Uh, and I'm very happy about that. Very exciting. (laughs) So, every week there has been two pastors up here preaching, and we're talking about a topic taking two different perspectives. Uh, It's been Judy. She served her time. She's out. And TC, (laughs) (laughs) TC is the last. So our topic today, if you couldn't tell from the Scripture, has to do with violence. In particular, we're trying to talk about does the Scripture give us permission to wage war or does the Scripture expect us to be nonviolent and pacifist? So I will be taking the side of Matthew this morning. And Matthew, what we read here, I really believe that it is the very foundation of everything that Jesus teaches in the Bible. It is the core of what he talks about. But before we can dive into that, I want to just take a moment and talk about what Jesus said when he first starts his ministry. So when he comes out, first begins his ministry, in Mark's gospel, the very first thing he says, says is, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So again, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. The idea being that Jesus' job is to bring the kingdom to earth. Have you heard me say this a few times? Yes, you have. Okay, so the idea is he's bringing the kingdom. Now, the question that we have to answer is, what is the kingdom? And the kingdom is often the exact opposite of the world in which we live right now. So when Jesus is laying out the concept of the kingdom, he uses anti-logic to do so. So in many ways, what he does is he undercuts the very foundations of power and influence that operate in our world right now. As an example, let's talk about money. So money, if you have a lot of money, then you are able to use that money in order to have privilege and favor in our society, why? because money allows you to buy the influence and the power that you need. But in God's kingdom, you know it, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So what that means is the poor in God's kingdom, they are the ones who are going to have that privilege and that favor. Again, another way our world works right now is that if you are a person who is strong and you use violence, very often, you will be given positions of power, why? because people are afraid of you. People don't want you to hurt them. And we see this in countries that have dictators, right? They'll use their army to come after their people. So, in God's kingdom though, first shall be last, last shall be first, right? So in God's kingdom, it's the pacifists and the peacekeepers who are the ones who ultimately rule over God's kingdom, not those who threaten with their fists or with weapons. And so Jesus' teachings that we read this morning, when he says, that you shall turn the other cheek and you shall love your enemy, that creates an opening for that type of world to exist. Now, if Jesus were here today, I'm sure that some of you in here would like to have a little bit of an argument with Jesus. And you would say, Jesus, such a world sounds impossible because as long as humans are running the show, violence and money, they will always be forces in our world. They'll never go away. Is that something you might say to him if you had the opportunity to do so? Probably, right? But Jesus asks you to check your assumptions at the door. He poses a question and he says, what if, what if you could defeat your enemies, not with force, but with love? What if you could achieve the exact same end without all the bloodshed? Is that not a better way forward? And for Jesus, what you have to realize is that these are not just open-ended philosophical questions where we sit there and say, Oh, yeah, that would be nice. For him, it's actually the way that he lived his life. These questions defined how he lived his life. And a good example of this is when he went to the cross. So do you remember when he was before Pontius Pilate? Yeah, okay. I mean, you weren't there, right? But do you remember the story that we talk about every Good Friday, right? Okay, so he goes before Pontius Pilate. Does he offer a defense before Pontius Pilate. No, he does not. He gets up before Pontius Pilate. He's accused of treason. He offers no defense. Now, if you were innocent of a crime and you were going to be executed, that would seem to be borderline insanity, would it not? Most of us would say, no, you offer defense. But in his lack of defense, what Jesus has done is he ends up winning the battle. Because Through his sacrifice, what he does in that is that he inspires his disciples to follow in his footsteps. They keep his movement going. And that is the reason why you are sitting here this morning. It's the reason why millions of people all over the world are here is because he used pacifism, he was nonviolent, and he didn't defend himself. And at the end of the day, he completely changed the world with those actions.
2: Go ahead. (laughs) All right, all right. Coming in hot there, all right. Amen. Great last sermon. I did a good job. Memorized the whole thing. Amen. Okay, well, the first uh, scripture we have uh, in Joshua, we essentially have God telling Joshua to go to war, but not just go to war, to completely destroy his enemies, And we see this throughout the Old Testament, all over the place. The Israelites, when they got to the Promised Land, they had to kill all of the current inhabitants of it, and God willed that to happen. David was blessed by God to destroy thousands of people. Samson was given strength to kill so many Philistines. I don't know if you've read the Samson story, but so many Philistines die in it. And God, apparently, is cool with all of this. Throughout all of the Old Testament, we see this. But if I'm really honest with myself, and I don't want you to get mad at me, I think it's a little bit of revisionist history. What I mean by that is, let's take a uh, sports player who has a really good game. They do something amazing. They, They... score 70 points with the flu, or they score four touchdowns in a football game, and afterwards they're like, how'd you do it? How'd you do that thing? And they're like, God, let me do that. I, I don't think I believe that God cared about your three touchdowns. I, I just, you over everyone else, I don't, I don't think that's how God works. And so what I think happened is that the Israelites were looking back on their history And they were looking throughout it and they are saying, okay, so we won this war that we had no right winning. Obviously God was totally on our side and that's why we won. But then we were conquered by, by this group of people. So clearly we made God mad and that's why God allowed them to conquer us. I don't think that God ever says, I want you to destroy anyone else. I don't think that that's how God works. Now, I know what you might be saying to yourself. You might be saying, TC, aren't you supposed to be arguing the opposite side of Alex? Sounds like you're saying the same exact thing. We'll get there. Don't worry, I'm gonna argue with this man. (laughs) (laughs) However, I don't wanna argue it through that lens. I don't wanna argue through that lens that God is saying go and destroy and hamstring their horses and burn them to the ground. That is not the way that I wanna argue this, because I don't believe that God says those things. I don't believe that God gives us those kinds of commands. I do, however, think that it is more than just black and white pacifism and violence. I think there's a lot of gray area in there that we're gonna talk about uh, when I talk next. Gray area like, is violence okay in dire situations? Is violence okay if it's for the greater good? (laughs) Is violence okay to protect those things that we love? And those are the kinds of things that I'm going to talk about after he talks again. So go right ahead.
0: <laughs> hey, you're making this easy on me today. Well, you're just proving my points for me. <laughs>
2: it's the last one. I just want to get through it, man. <laughs>
0: So uh, I would agree with him that uh, this is not a black and white issue, that it's not a matter of you choosing whether you're going to be super violent or whether you're going to be nonviolent pacifist completely. Like, it's not just the, that two polar ends. That We're talking about a lot of gray area. And in fact, our scripture from Matthew gets into this gray area in kind of a really interesting way. So let's start with the first thing that Jesus talks about. Turn the other cheek. Specifically, what does he say? He says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, if you've read this before, you probably have thought to yourself, that sounds to me kind of like an act of submission, doesn't it? Because if you allow somebody to hit you, and then you say, hey, go ahead, do it again, hit me again, right? It seems like you're assenting to the punishment and even welcoming it. Is that true? Okay. Which, on the outside of it, totally seems that way. However, If you look at it from the perspective of the aggressor, you understand how this is very different. So, if you've ever been in a fight before, what you know is, is that you're gonna use your dominant hand to fight. In fact, stand up for a second. Okay. Um, This wasn't in my outline. (laughs) I've been waiting seven years to do this. I want you to know that. So, (laughs) So if if I were to hit TC with my dominant hand, and I'm dominant with my right hand, don't worry, I'm not gonna hit you with my full force. Okay. So, oh, yeah. okay. I, so, so if I were to hit him, what I would do is I would come across and I'd hit him here. Because that's the easiest way for me to strike him with my dominant hand. Now pretend like I struck you. And oh he'd go, no. oh no, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Okay. Why would you do that?
0: Okay. So he so turn, yeah, there you go. Just like that. Okay. Now what would I if you hit somebody what do you expect do, They're going to hit you back right they're, as soon as you strike them the immediate reaction from most people is that you're going to hit back right now if I strike him if I hit him and he doesn't do anything what happens to me Huh you get mad you get him All right well initially I'm going to think if I if I really hit him hard and he doesn't move I'm going to think to myself what went wrong here, right? <laughs> like, did I not hit him hard enough? Is he a superhero? Like, what's the, what's the situation with this? Now, because it's going to get into my head for a second. Now, imagine that instead of coming at me, he does. He, he, I hit him on the right, or le- the left cheek. Now he turns, and he's exposing his right cheek to me. Now, just imagine. Now, if, I'm gonna, if you've ever been in a fight, what you know is, just turn that way, So that, no, 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 like turn your, your head so that people, like, that's what you're exposing. There okay. you go, yeah. Now, if I'm gonna hit him again with my dominant hand, what's gonna happen is I'm gonna hit all this part of his face, his teeth, all this stuff right here. If you've ever been in a fight, that destroys your hand. So really, the only clean shot that I have now is this side of his face, and I have to use my less dominant hand. If you're a boxer, not a big deal, but, <laughs> if you're just a normal person this is super weak so what that does is it makes me think is it worth it for me to hit him with my less dominant hand is it gonna do anything and at the end of the day it makes me think should I even continue this fight at all so TC by not reacting with violence by following Jesus's teachings he will have de-escalated the situation and in doing so, he's done something quite remarkable. He's taken what would have been a very bloody altercation, probably for me if we're being honest, and, <laughs> uh, and he's reduced it to a single blow. And so this is what Jesus' teachings on pacifism are all about. It's not to open you up to an endless amount of physical punishment. What it is, is to set the option of violence aside so that you can explore more constructive solutions to your issues. Does that make sense? All right, back to you, sir.
2: (laughs) All right. (laughs) I was not expecting a full demonstration. Uh, All right, So, so I do, too high. I do love the idea of pacifism. I really, really do. It's how I typically live my life. I'm not a typically violent person, I don't use violence As a means to ends I don't use it as a solution Um, but if if I'm honest with myself there's a line there's a line that once it is crossed I can no longer be a pacifist I think we all have this line and we need to find it we need to figure out what it is hopefully not firsthand but we need to to wrestle with that my line is not myself Uh, I have in my life, had people in my face shouting at me, push me. I've had people punch me. One of the earliest fights I can remember, when I was in second grade, a kid punched me like 10 times in the face before I even knew what happened, and I was in shock. But what, <laughs> what Alex was saying happened, I just stood there. Like, I didn't cry, I didn't like, get angry, I just was like, what's happening? And it scared him enough that he started to run away and cry. <laughs> So before I even knew what happened, I was like, hey, I won. I don't know how that happened. Um, But my line is not myself. I can normally de-escalate the situation, calm things down, uh, or just walk away, and everything's totally fine. My line would be if someone is directly threatening or physically harming my loved ones. If someone... (laughs) This guy. In case in case you are unaware, he makes the slideshows. So I never know what's gonna be behind me when I say these things. Yeah, yeah. Oh what a joke, sir. If someone is physically harming one of my you threw me off so much that I need to find my place. This is If someone is physically harming my loved one or committing violence on them, you better believe that I would stop them to defuse that situation. And I wouldn't really think about nonviolent options. I wouldn't try to talk them out of striking my loved one or or attacking Ellen. We'll just use Ellen since she's up there. Um, But I would just instantly take them out. Like, that's just what my innate reaction would be, and I wouldn't think about the theological implications of it or the moral implications of my actions. I would just do it. Now, let me ask you if someone was physically assaulting one of your loved ones, wouldn't you step in? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you step in? Yeah. So, this is the line that, that I'm talking about. Now, are there nonviolent ways to do this? Sure, there are absolutely nonviolent ways. I could step in between her attacker and, and Ellen. Uh, and take the abuse myself. I could literally cover her body. I actually have enough body that I could physically <laughs> cover all of her body and act as a, a human shield uh, so that she didn't get attacked anymore. But that would not be my initial uh, idea. My initial idea would be to remove this problem. And the problem is not my wife. The problem is whoever is attacking, this time, the problem is whoever's attacking my wife. <laughs> can't react, it just opens the door. Uh, And this actually gets me to my wider point. Nonviolence works until it doesn't. And that's hard for me to say. That's difficult for me to sit with. Because of heroes like Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi, who made huge, amazing strides with their nonviolent movements who showed the world that, that this kind of reaction can work, it, they're heroes of mine. And so it's, it's hard for me to say that nonviolence works until it doesn't. But I think I actually believe that. If we take my idea of a personal line and we expand it, we make it bigger, we can see how it works in communities, in states and countries, in the whole world. Now, world peace is something that I think we all innately desire, right? Do you guys want world peace? I think everyone wants world peace. They just want it the way they want it, uh, which is part of the problem. Uh, But we all want world peace. If our nation tomorrow decided that we were going to be a completely nonviolent nation, if we were going to abide by the, the law of the kingdom of God and put down all of our arms, take all of the money that we put towards the military and defense and put it other places in our country, I don't think, honestly, that we would be a country very long. I think someone would come and just say, oh, you guys aren't going to fight? Cool, we're in charge now. I think that's how it would happen. And then our whole country, which is then nonviolent, is no longer a beacon of light in the world. It is just taken over in another country. Let's talk about one of Alex's favorite topics, World War II. Now, if you don't know, he preaches about World War II every other sermon, so I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up in his sermon today. But World War II started in 19... You brought it up, now. I Well, you're gonna talk about it here. <laughs> Self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> Uh, World War II started in 1939, correct? Hmm? You would know. uh, The United States did not get involved until 1941. That's two full years. Now, when we're talking about history and we're talking about those dates, that doesn't seem like a long time. But two full years is excruciatingly long, especially when we're talking about war times. So the United States did not get involved in World War II for two years. My hypothetical is, what if the U.S. had gotten involved earlier? Would we have been able to stop the war earlier? Would we have been able to stop the Holocaust earlier? And if so, how many lives could have been saved by us using violence in that way? You see, my question is, when is violence just? When does justice and violence meet? When is doing the right thing also doing a violent thing? And, and this is what we have to wrestle with. And this is difficult for me in most situations because, again, that's not how I tend to live my life. The line that I'm talking about is so subjective. Mine is different than yours, which is different than all of yours. And when we do take that macro view, that holistic view, we're dealing with everyone's line. So if all of us in here were to talk about where our line was, we would have to discuss and debate to figure out what is right. That line is fluid, and and it moves around a lot. And the only time that it's really solid is when we look at it in hindsight. So to take World War II again as as the example, if we had, if the United States had jumped into the war earlier, and they had decided to to jump in earlier and and defeat uh, Hitler, and stop the Holocaust and stop the war, and that saved countless lives, I think that everyone here and everyone in the world would think that would be a good thing they would think that that's a just use of violence, would, would you? Knowing what we know, if we could have stopped the war earlier, would that have been a just use of violence? Yes. Now, the other side of that line, however, is to me, and don't get mad at me, I know that's the second time I've said that this, this sermon, but is also in World War II, and it is our response to Japan in World War II. Now, Japan attacked the United States, Uh, and killed 2,403 people at Pearl Harbor. That is an atrocity, it was unprovoked, and it was a tragedy. In response, the United States dropped two atomic bombs, the most advanced and deadly weapons we had at the time, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those are two cities, those are not military targets. Killing 120,000 people instantly, and tens of thousands of people through radiation poisoning later. On top of that, the United States rounded up Japanese-American citizens and put them into internment camps. This, to me, is not justice and violence meeting. This, to me, is over the line. It's too far. To me, the line is a yoke. It's saying, I don't want to do this action. I don't want to attack this person. I don't want to cause harm. But in order to save others, in order to do the greater good, I feel like I have to. It's a responsibility that very few of us actually want, but we all need to wrestle with. Because once the use of violence is done, we cannot then revel in more violence. Once I tackle Ellen's attacker off of her, I cannot then ground and pound them MMA style because it would make me feel better. It would probably make me feel better, but I can't do that. Once we decide that we must fight terrorists, we can't round up anybody who looks like they might be a terrorist in our own country just because we are afraid of them. This is not justice. This is not the greater good. Like I said earlier this morning, the line is ever moving, ever fluctuating. So how do we know when the right time to act is? We don't. We don't really know. How do we know when we can use violence? We're, we, we don't. That's why we must own this yoke. And I, I'm going to read this part verbatim because I wrote it very specifically. Saying, yes, I tackled the man onto the pavement. I didn't generally want to tackle him, but I felt that I had to for the safety of my wife. Saying, we don't want to go to war. But because of the mass atrocities that were happening, we felt like we had to go to war to save lives that could be saved. This comes with a flip side, though, owning the yoke when we say, we went too far we acted out of fear, we affected people's lives that needed not be affected, that is owning the yoke, that is wearing the yoke, and that is something that we must do when we talk about justice and violence meeting. We have to own the yoke, and wear it only when it is for the greater good.
0: I'd like to tell you that's the end of the sermon, but you took a lot of time on that. I
2: did. It was, there was a lot to talk about.
0: It's you know, he does this in our personal conversations as well, where he like, <laughs> takes over and he like doesn't let anybody else speak. It's probably why he took this side of the argument, you know, <laughs> just violently taking away everybody else's right to go. So that is anyway, not what you actually did bring up a lot of really good points. Thank you. And I, and I want to address some of those points specifically. And I want to start with the first one that you brought up with, which, which has to do with if somebody was attacking my family, what would I do? You asked me that question. I did. Okay. So if somebody was attacking my family, very much I would step in to try to get them out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. And if that required me to be violent and to use violent actions, I would do so reluctantly because the whole point is to keep them safe. However, I think if we're gonna understand Jesus' teachings on pacifism, we have to dig down into that example for a moment. So the question that we have to answer is, why is this person attacking my family in the first place? Is the person trying to rob my family? Is the person mentally ill? and they don't understand the consequences of their actions? Are they deranged and they like to use violence? They're just a violent person? Or do they perceive my family as a threat? Now, each of those motivations matter. And those are the three primary motivations for why we have violent altercations in our world. if we're going to walk through those, because like you were talking about, I don't think most of us in here, would you agree that most people don't, don't, don't innately want to get into violent altercations? Like, is that something, do, do you wake up in the morning and you're like, you know what, I think i are gonna fight today, you know? Like, no, I don't think most of us in here think that way, do we? No. So, if we are gonna get into this, and we're gonna to try to figure out, we have to ask, why does this person have a desire to cause harm? Which we don't often ask, we're just looking at, there's violence, we need to do something about it. So why is it happening? All right, if it's the first thing that we're talking about, the first or the second, robbery or mental illness. If somebody's trying to rob you, why are they doing that? Well, usually they're doing it because they grew up in poverty, and they don't have access to the resources that they need. And so because of that, they see you, you have resources, they're gonna take it from you, right? You wanna deal with that, you gotta alleviate poverty. If somebody's mentally ill and they're attacking you and they don't understand the consequences of their actions or they're a person who is coming after you because they just like to commit violence, the way that you deal with that is that you have to have better treatments for the mentally ill in your society. Those are the only two ways you're gonna deal with those first two problems. You have to either alleviate the poverty or have better treatment for mental illness. Those will always be an issue as long as those things are there. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, it's never going to go away unless you do those things. It is the third issue where they perceive my family as an enemy. That is what Jesus is trying to deal with through his teachings. So why is it that we perceive someone else to be an enemy, a threat to us? Well, we perceive it because it's what we're taught by the people around us. So, you use World War II. Great example, by the way, if I may say so myself. So, in World War II, when you're looking at the reasons why it happened, the Nazis, they taught the German people, they taught them that the Jews were evil subhumans who needed to be killed. They needed to be exterminated, taught them that. The Japanese, when she brought up hmm. Nagasaki, Hiroshima, they taught, the military taught their people that they had the superior culture in the world, the superior nation in the world, and that the Anglo Saxon culture was weak and decadent, and that's why they needed to be subdued. Both of these nations taught hate and prejudice. So if hate and prejudice is something that can be learned, it is also something that can be unlearned, which is why Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemy. When you have been told and when you are required to love someone who you have been told to hate, that's a game changer, friends. That is a game changer. Think about it. When you have to hate somebody, how do you hate them? Well, if you're going to hate somebody you're usually going to see a very one-dimensional version of that person. And that one dimension is going to be something negative that you don't like. But when you love somebody, think about the people who you love. Are they multidimensional to you? You know the good, you know the bad. And you're willing to hold those two things together. And so if you're required to love somebody, you're going to see them as a fully fleshed out person. And that makes a difference, because that means that you want to protect them from harm, right? If you know somebody, you want to protect them. And a good example of this was Derek Black. So you remember when Derek was here, right? Okay, Derek, raised in the white supremacist movement, told to hate Jews, told to hate African-Americans, told to hate immigrants. These are the people he was taught to hate in his life. And Derek, he ends up going to school, And at school, he starts interacting with all those people. And he's having a tough time reconciling these one-dimensional versions of these people who he's been told about with these fully fleshed-out individuals. And over time, what happens is, he comes to care for these people. He sees them as being multi-dimensional. And as a result, he starts to love them. And so he has to leave that movement behind. Now, why do I use Derek as an example? Because it's exactly the same end that Jesus is going for when he says to love your enemy. When he says this, I have to tell you, this particular teaching of his is insanely genius. And it's genius because the core of it, it understands that human conflict results from what we teach. If you teach hate and prejudice, then you will always have violence in the world. There is no doubt about that. Always it will be in the world. You can't get rid of it. But if you teach love and acceptance, then you have a world where pacifism is possible. It is all about what you teach. And so for us, here as Christians, our job is to teach the values of love and acceptance and to live them out. Now what does that mean? What that means is is that when you come into conflict with somebody who you disagree with, you have to love them. Not because it's easy, but because it is necessary to create that world that Jesus talked about. And that is really the whole point behind this sermon series. What have we been doing this whole time in this sermon series? Think about it. We've been taking two different points of view and we're holding them in tension with each other. Now, what do you all know to be true? You know that when two people have two different points of view, what does that often lead to? It leads to conflict, right? Conflict, confrontation but if you can do what we've done through this whole series where you're taking two different points of view and you hold them in tension with love and acceptance then you're going to help edge us ever closer to the world that jesus envisioned a world where peace is the norm and violence is a choice that is used so sparingly that our children and our children's children will not even recognize it as a viable option it is our responsibility as Christians to create that world, not because it's easy, but because it is necessary. And I hope that we will do that together. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.